0: Bob's Red Mill is proud to bring you modernist breadcrumbs. Love learning about food? Get delicious recipes, valuable coupons, and more discussions of our very favorite ingredients at bobsredmill.com podcast. Michael Harlan Turkell, and this is Modernist Breadcrumbs. Thermodynamics. We won't get into the science of it. Well, we will, but in the meantime, know it's as simple as hot air rises. When baking bread, there's an important step called the oven spring unrelated to the quarterly division of the year, but rather a condition due to the thermal expansion of a loaf when it first hits a hot surface. It's almost as if bread enlivens with heat, rising with animation, while it's really meeting the end of a long life cycle. We'll discuss thermal mass, or the ability to absorb and hold heat in two parts, within bread itself and the ovens they're baked in. It's a complex physico-chemical process that's more than just hot air. Yeah, so,
1: you know, you have conduction, convection um, type ovens um, and radiant type ovens. So when it comes to a gas brick oven, you know, you have your your burners on the bottom and you have bricks on the bottom. So you're, you're getting that type of heat. Um, very much of a uh bottom uh type cooking uh, of an element when you look at an electric oven you kind of have the best of all worlds you know you have the stone uh that's layered on the bottom you have a electric uh that's underneath that stone you have electric piece that's over the top and then some of these have convection as well so you almost have this pizza that's getting getting cooked from the bottom top uh the sides and then you have a little bit of a convection element Uh, When it comes to, like, wood versus coal, everybody says, you know, how does a wood cook faster than a coal oven? Well, when it comes to a coal oven, you have a much bigger mouth. You have a much much wider, more real estate-type oven. A higher dome, you have a bed of coal that cooks from the bottom kind of up, not like a wood-fired oven that has a bed of, you know, burnt wood as coals, like, on the bottom, but you also have a flame going over the top. So you have this... Radiant heat of the top and bottom in a wood-fired oven that could be 900 degrees, and you have that bed of coal that cooks from the bottom up in a much bigger, bigger, wider mouth-type oven. Hence, you get a longer bake in a 1,000-degree oven in a coal oven versus a wood oven that's 900 degrees because you have two different types of you know, heating elements. Um, you know, there's other types of ovens out there, but uh, when you think of gas, electric, coal, and wood, th- those are the four main types, really.
2: It's getting hot in here. Nelly's influential 2002 hit is definitely an earworm, and it gets stuck in my head every time I fire up the two-burner oven in my tiny Brooklyn apartment. Professional bakers like Tony Gemignani have serious opinions about ovens. Gas or electric, deck or wood fire, convection or radiant— But us home bakers, we're usually stuck with whatever we've got. Baking happens everywhere, in good ovens and in bad, because we love bread, and we always have.
0: Nathan Mervold, founder of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, explains how professionalization showed up early in bread baking, back when the pros had a lot less oven choice, too.
3: Baking was something that was both so important to society, required so much skill, and also um, had to be done uh, sort of at such continual volume that you start seeing communal ovens. So one of the first things that was a shared resource of a group of people was very likely an oven. And that's true regardless of whether the oven was used to make bread or it was used for for bricks or for smelting metal. Um, uh, But bakeries appear and that means that uh, bread was almost certainly one of the first professionally cooked items. Bread starts becoming a profession early because uh, when you started having a civilization, the idea of centralizing the production had lots of advantages. You could have people that were good at it. You could keep the ovens going round the clock. Um, that's important because uh, it takes a lot of fuel to get your oven hot, and you kind of don't want to ever let it not get hot. So the idea of working in shifts almost certainly started with bakers, uh, working round the clock to uh, keep ovens going. Um, and when you have a society whose main Uh, caloric intake comes from bread. That means that people are eating one to two pounds of bread per person, per day. That's a lot of bread.
4: Baking is a lot like another ancient proto-scientific art, alchemy. We're not sure if Eric Kaiser has an elixir for immortality, but bread seems like a close enough substitute for the philosopher's stone. I say... All the time that a baker is an alchemist, it means that he need to take care of the temperature, he need to take care of quality of the flour, he need to take care of the atmosphere, he need to take care of his equipment and he need to to know where he wants to do. What which type of bread he wants to do. That intention, the idea of which type of bread you want to make is a great place to start. But Peter Endris of Runner and Stone reminds us that even an intention needs to be seasonally appropriate.
5: Well, first of all, bread recipes are never locked in because there's four seasons and there's variations in the flour and um, all sorts of things that can go wrong at any given moment. Uh, There's human error. There's a 24-hour operation where three different people have a hand in the same bread. So uh, I think that's, that's the fun thing about bread baking is that it's never really locked in. There's a constant conversation happening. And just when you think everything's going smooth for two weeks, then the weather changes again or we get a batch of flour that seems a little different in some way.
2: And even when you've got the recipe down, Jeremy Shapiro points out that baking can still end up being a guessing game.
6: It can be pretty and then at the same time it can kind of look ugly. Uh, really, you got to cut into that sucker and see what's going on inside. I mean, you could see undercooked, under fermented. I've shown pictures to some bakers, although it looks like you need a little more bulk or your pre shaping wasn't good. And you're like, Jesus, how do you know? But they know.
4: Jason Bond knows switching off is tempting when you're deep in the rhythm of kneading. But it's not 2001 anymore, and we're sorry. We're afraid we can't do that.
6: And uh, and I really just, I really enjoy making bread. You know, just it's it's one of those things where you have to pay attention. You know, it's, you know, you can certainly get your your methods down and your your technique down and feel fairly confident in a good result, but but you can't necessarily just go all go robot on it. You can't you can't zone out and stop paying attention because it is an interactive thing where it's you know it, it does it does change day to day. Like if the hum- humidity is different or a certain batch of flour has different humidity or different protein levels or you know there's there's a lot of variables that change a specific given recipe on any given day and uh <clears throat> you know and even just the techniques like if you're if you're rushed and you have to kind of push you know push the schedule or whatever you're going to notice you know the results are going to be lessened and so you know bread is always a, a challenge and kind of reminds you that you know you still got <laughs> you still got some things to learn <laughs> you know and so i like that about it it's you know it's it's never boring making the bread, it's, you know, it keep, keeps you focused.
2: The challenge of bread is part of what draws so many of us to baking. That flux, the conversation the dough has with the weather. It's what keeps us on our toes. Professional bakers might as well be members of the Bolshoi Ballet with how on point they have to be. Mark Furstenberg is a baker familiar with that dance and the attitude it takes to bake professionally.
7: The biggest differences between home bakers and professional bakers are um, first that we professional bakers must be consistent or must try to be consistent. And that means, um, being consistent means means weighing every ingredient and taking temperatures of every ingredient in an effort to do today exactly what we did yesterday and the same tomorrow. Uh, whereas home bakers, of course, can, can use s- simply intuition, throwing a handful of salt into a dough, and if it's not quite salty enough or a little too salty that's okay, because it's possible to do it again, so when I was teaching when I started teaching baking to students, I had to explain why I was doing things, and that in turn made it necessary for me to do things uh, in a more refined way so i I really I really reinvented when I opened Marvelous Market I wasn't doing things by intuition I wasn't throwing the salt into the mixer but I had I had formulas recipes that were invented by other people and so some of those recipes would say uh, f- 60 pounds of flour and and, um, and 14 cups of buttermilk, for example. Well, 14 cups, as you know well, uh, is a very imprecise measurement because a, uh, it cups weigh uh, frequently 50 or 100, even 100 grams more than other cups if those little lines on measuring cups are not precise enough. So I learned that I had to weigh ingredients, and then I was able to teach that uh, But but inventing formula, describing to people how they could experiment with different bread recipes through formula, that was all something I came to understand by thinking about what I was doing. And what I was doing had simply been taught to me by other people who were doing it and some of whom didn't understand why they were doing it.
0: Francisco Magoya is head chef at Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread. Francisco's bread memories start long before he was a baker himself, with the smell wafting from his childhood neighbor's home. His neighbor blurred the lines between professional and home baking, which was dubiously legal, even to the children waiting eagerly for
8: samples. Where I used to live, there was this German guy who was a baker. And he used to bake bread out of his house. It was like a totally illegal operation he was running because he would bake bread in his house and sell it out of his house. Like, if you literally started doing that in your house, that's how he did it. Um, And so he used to bake uh, challah. And in the holidays, he used to bake uh, gingerbread. I just I mean though, though that aroma is not the same thing I always compared to like a like a baguette bakery, you know, or a sourdough bakery. These are different environments that all have their particular smells. So I, I think that, that that aroma of why, you know, bread smells so good and, and, and what the differences between one bread and the other has to do with you know, really what bread are you making and what is the environment, the context, I suppose. So, for me, gingerbread, I always think of this German guy. I forget what his name was. He was a cranky old man, but he made awesome bread. And just sitting there, he would have like some samples sometimes. And it was, it, when I was a kid, it seemed like the most normal thing in the world that there would be in Mexico City a German guy living close to you, baking bread illegally out of his house. Um, but those, when I started writing this book and I started thinking about that, I'm like, wow, that was nuts. And, but I still I can smell the gingerbread, you know?
4: No matter where you're baking, it's easy to fall under the spell of fermentation. Christina peterson Magoya happily trades meticulousness for a bit of magic.
9: And that's when I began to kind of explore pastry, decided that pastry was really... Um, it really was full of finesse and skill and perfection and Part of what I enjoyed about bread was the the ability to have the bread control you as opposed to you controlling and manipulating the ingredients um, the process of fermentation just sparked my desire to learn more um, to understand how the ingredients work together and really, to learn not how to manipulate them but how to work with the ingredients.
4: There is a protocol to professional production and it has a lot to do with pace.
9: Bread rules, yeah that's a good question. I think they've kind of evolved over time I think yeah just through I think a lot of it has to do with just uh, production baking you get you, you move towards things that are easy to execute and that you really enjoy doing that you can um really not control the pace but the pace controls you so there it's easy to produce a lot of them but still maintain quality i think that's kind of the crux of any bakery any problems in a bakery is you know your production load and and your ability to create a product that meets your standards i guess
2: But rules are made to be broken, right? Jim Leahy is drawn to bread's rebellious side.
8: Bake a piece of dough at 400 degrees that weighs one kilo, that has a certain viscosity, yada, 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 fermentation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That becomes one product. Take the same dough and bake it at 520 with a different baking profile you know, humidity, what have you, whatever it is, whatever whatever consistent factors one would choose, you have another product. One dough,
4: two products,
8: you know. Um, it's not, you know, this is not, uh, human beings have been doing this, do this, this is what we do. I mean, part of bread's
4: charm is also its kind of downfall. It's so goddamn fungible. For home bakers just starting out, that fungibility can be frightening. Thankfully, having the right tools can keep things contained.
8: What we really recommend with these pans is a couple of things. First is, get a pan that is gonna be coated with some sort of non-stick surface. The, the pans that are just straight up aluminum, you have to oil them and coat them in flour, which, I mean, those are two steps already there, that it's not a lot of work but for the most part, whatever flour you line the pan with is going to stick to your dough. And so you're going to have that floury look, which, again, it's you, know, you might <laughs> really like that look on the outside of your bed. But if you don't, I think the most important thing you can do is just buy a Teflon-coated pan. And we even recommend for Teflon-coated pans just uh, do a light mist of oil. They're nonstick, but not as nonstick as you would want them to be. So just a little coat of spray oil is great for letting A, the dough when it's proofing, slide up easily from the pan and not get caught or stuck on anything, and also for release from the pan.
2: And some of the best equipment might already be in your kitchen cupboard. Emily Bueller, author of Bread Science, The Chemistry and Craft of Making Bread, has a great at-home hack.
10: And so my favorite baking method, which I just find easy and it works really well, Is that I bake in one of those old corningware casserole dishes that has a lid on it and you can find them all the time at the thrift store for like four dollars and basically you have to preheat the casserole and the lid with the oven and then when you're ready to bake you take the lid off and drop your dough in you can spritz it a little but you cover it and the casserole dish will actually trap the steam that's coming off the dough And so it's like you have this heat source surrounding your dough, keeping it warm and trapping the steam so it makes a really nice brown crust and it helps with expansion. And after about 15 minutes, take the lid off and let the steam out because the dough will not brown up if you don't do that. But basically, you leave that lid on while it's expanding and then take it off. And that I have found... to be a pretty consistent method. And if you don't, you can do the corningware casserole, uh, Dutch oven is the same basic idea.
4: To become a baker at home or in the kitchen requires patience. There are styles which, even when mastered, require a little more time. As Emily describes, baking begins long before you put the dough in the oven.
10: And then with baking, I would say uh, you want your dough to be properly proofed before it goes in the oven, because if it's fully proofed, the heat will be able to penetrate through the dough and make it all expand properly, whereas if it's not properly proofed, the center will still be dense, and the heat won't be able to get through there, so you'll have less oven spring, and you might even have a raw center of your bread. Hmm. And then having the oven hot enough is key. And with a home oven, when you open the door, a lot of the heat rushes out. And then, you know, you put your dough in and you shut the door, but it takes the oven some time to preheat or, sorry, to reheat. And in a bakery where they have a hearth oven, you know, the hearth is 450 degrees, and you open the door and there's a blast of heat but the oven temperature doesn't actually drop at all because it has this massive hearth in there that is at temperature. So to try to kind of imitate that in your home oven, um, you can, well, definitely preheat the oven well. And I would say preheat longer than the oven tells you to because when it beeps telling you it's 450 degrees, I think it means that the air in there is 450 degrees, but the walls might still be absorbing heat. So you just want to preheat longer than it tells you to. Some recipes require a little more ingenuity.
2: Nathan tried mastering the art of French cooking long before his modernist cuisine days.
3: One of my bread experiments as a child was I tried to make baguettes from the elaborate recipe that was in Julia Child's Art of French Cooking. And the part that confused me the most was there was these instructions about putting another pan in the oven, getting it really hot, and then spraying water in so that you'd put steam into the oven because it said you needed to put steam in to make the bread crusty. Now, this made absolutely no sense to me because why would steam make bread crusty? Shouldn't it make it soggy? Uh, well, this is just something clearly I don't understand. I was you know, 10 or 11, and I realized there was a bunch of stuff I had to learn. Well, here I am, <laughs> all these years later, and I said, look, we got to find out why people, why Steam does this, and who started doing it first. And that turned out to be a crazy story. So, it, the people who seem to have figured it out first was bakers in Vienna, Austria. And the story goes that they would clean out the oven with wet straw, sort of using it to sweep out um, uh, burnt crumbs and things before the bake, and that put steam in the oven, and they noticed that that made the bread crispy. I say they noticed, someone must have noticed, and by God, try as we might, Talking to historians in Germany and Austria and other places, we have not found who invented that.
2: As Julia said, the art of bread making can become a consuming hobby. And no matter how often or how many kinds of bread one has made, there always seems to be something new to learn. Though we may have access to high-tech ovens, which give us detailed information on temperature, baking still requires a little intuition.
3: So when you put bread into an oven, the outside of the bread is not actually at the oven temperature. You think, well, gee, I put the bread into a 400-degree oven. Clearly, that means that the outside is going to be like 400 degrees, right? Make perfect sense. Nope. Doesn't work that way. And it doesn't work that way for the same reason that you're cold when you get out of the swimming pool. The dough is wet, and it immediately starts to evaporate. Now, a meteorologist studying the weather will call that the wet bulb temperature. And in science class, you may have seen two thermometers right beside each other, one of which has a little sock over the bulb that goes into a little container of water to keep it wet, and it will always measure a lower temperature. It turns out this figures in the story of why um, steam makes bread crispy. But the main thing that goes on with bread and baking is an effect called the heat pipe effect. Now in your laptop, there's a processor that gets really hot, and it gets really hot because doing all those billions of calculations per second just generates heat. In a desktop computer, you usually have a fan, but if fans are both annoying and they take physical space and so forth. So today most laptops have what's called a heat pipe. And a heat pipe is the most efficient way to move heat from one place to another. And what it consists of is a tube that has a liquid in it, sometimes water, but usually in a laptop, not water, um, which will evaporate. Then it, that evaporated stuff goes to, down the heat pipe to the other end of the heat pipe, where it can become cold, and then the liquid flows back.
4: For all the New Yorkers tuning in, especially those that believe it's the water that makes the bagels and pizzas so good, Nathan has a useful analogy for understanding the heat pipe principle.
3: Now, what does that steam do? Well, the steam's building up lots of pressure because it's trying to be 1,600 times the volume of the little bubble it was in to begin with. Um, And it does two things. It can break through and vent to the outside, so that's out into the oven, or it can push through the bubble next door. And if it pushes through the bubble next door, now you've got a bigger bubble. Well, that bubble is going to keep breaking down barriers and it will penetrate deep into the loaf of the bread and as it penetrates it's carrying heat because uh, vaporized water is going in that vaporized water that goes in condenses so it's actually carrying water from the outside of the loaf in but it's also carrying a lot of heat and that heat pipe is enormously efficient at making heat come into the middle of your oven um, perhaps a different analogy is if you live in an um, apartment house that's heated with uh, steam, you have steam radiators, the boiler down in the basement sends steam up and that's what makes everybody's apartment hot. Well, effectively, the outside, the crust of your bread is like the boiler and it's sending steam through steam pipes Now, the pipes weren't there to begin with, but the pipes were made as each bubble continues to burst down the line, and it's sending that heat all the way down into the center of your loaf.
2: New Yorkers brag about not having to pay for heat. But these old steam systems are notoriously finicky, and our tiny apartments can quickly turn into saunas. When it comes to the structure of a bread, it's important to get the temperature just right.
8: remove it from the pan it's been baking in and put it on a wire rack and then just let it bake for a little bit longer. Think of the crust of of these breads, usually enriched, brioche, sandwich bread, et cetera. Think of the crust as the structure that is going to support the crumb. It's almost like a, um, if you think of in terms of architecture, you're thinking of a a strong enough structure that is going to be able to support an entire building. So in this case, in the bread case, when you have enriched breads, the crust is a softer thing. It's not like a sourdough that has this strength. Sandwich bread and brioche are going to be a little bit softer. So you really need to make sure you're setting the crust without over-baking it so that it won't collapse onto itself. So bake your brioche, bake it to uh, or sandwich bread. We, we recommend baking to an internal temperature of between um, two hundred. It's 90 to 93 degrees Celsius, which is 195 to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. At this point, it's baked, but we want to set the crust. So carefully take it out of the pan, put it on a, wire, on a sheet pan with the wire rack, and then just let it sit and in the oven for five more minutes. This is going to be enough to really set the outside um, and to maintain its shape. So if you have a pan where you can remove the hinges and then just basically just separate things out instead of having to turn your bread over and potentially damage the crust, they're great for that. And most of them are already Teflon coated. And some even have like like patterns on the side, you know, like uh, zigzags or whatever. So so those pans work great for, for baking brush.
4: When it comes to working in a production bakery with deck ovens, the principles are the same, but on a larger scale. Ken Forkish describes the setup he uses in his own kitchens.
5: <laughs> I own a lot of ovens. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I've got two deck ovens, at, like two bakeries. So Ken's Artisan Bakery uh, and then Trifecta's, uh Bakery. I have the same manufacturer of oven. It's a IG Forni. It's built in Verona, Italy. Um, it's sold by TMB Baking. This is Michelle Sulas's former company, uh, and it's just a great bread oven. I've I've been using them for 16 years. Uh, it's a gas-fired deck oven, so the breads baked directly on the hearth. Uh, my bigger one, um, I can bake 120 baguettes at a time. Uh, my other one, I can bake 80 baguettes at a time.
2: As you would expect, certain ovens are more desirable than others. Even professional bakers are susceptible to oven envy. Dan Leder of Bread Alone Bakery is trying not to brag, but...
11: There's a company, a German company called Heuft, that is the considered the number one artisan bread oven in germany and austria and you know that part of northern europe you know, if you say as a baker if you say you have a hoist oven it's, it's, it's like saying you you drive a ferrari or a lamborghini or something it's a very you know it's not a complicated oven but it's a very very high quality and really really bakes very very well and Hoyt, for a very long time, did not export to the United States. It's a, it's a privately held company, and they're, they're very careful about not overextending themselves. Um, and uh, we became, Bread Alone became the first bakery in the U.S. when we built our new oven to put in a Hoyt deck oven. So it's a, it's a, it's a thermal oil oven, meaning that you know, it's all brick inside. But the, the heating element is uh, uh, thermal oil that's, that goes through the oven. It's the same oven that Chad Robertson put in in, the, in his new tartine uh, bakery in San Francisco.
4: There are often very good reasons to be covetous of a particular oven. Much of that comes from the right of oven spring, which Tony Gemignani talks us through.
1: Yeah, so oven spring, you know, understanding that when you drop a pizza in your oven, you'll know uh, how hot it is and how good of a recovery time it has with oven spring. It's its when that dough touches that surface, and it, it, it literally makes that dough pop. And you'll see ovens that have good oven spring and ovens that don't, especially when it comes to Neapolitan-style pizza. Um, you really see it in certain ovens. Um, oven spring is very, very important when it comes to making pizzas uh especially you know you you let that deal rise for 36 hours you know you opened it up perfectly you let it come up to room temperature you slid it on your peel you dropped it in your oven all of a sudden you're like bang oh man this oven sucks it doesn't have any ovens spring. you know what, what's going on here and you took all that time and all that care to make that perfect and your starter was perfect and it's aromatic and everything's amazing and it just, that oven is not right. And a lot of people don't understand that.
2: Bread moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. Or so Ken Forkish says.
5: Hopefully it expands very rapidly. <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, you got a bad batch. Uh, the coolest thing, I think, is uh, when, when we load that gets into the oven, you know, they, they go in as a you know, a tube that's about, I guess, two, two inches of diameter, as it went in the space of like three minutes, it's doubled in volume. It's just the coolest thing. I love that.
4: Getting the right oven spring also takes skill. Once again, Emily is on hand with a few hacks.
10: So basically, all these different tricks you can use get the oven temperature to be at your baking temperature when the dough goes in. And that's because All of your chance to have oven spring happen, to have the dough expand, happens right when you put your dough in. And once the crust starts to form, you've missed your chance. So you want the oven to be good and hot when the dough goes in.
2: Once the dough starts expanding, there's very little you can do to keep it from turning into a gelatinous form that engulfs everything. Francisco hasn't had to freeze any blobs, but he's gone to some lengths to find the limit.
8: You'd be amazed at how much you can put in a dough and it will still expand. Um, And we tried many different things with that. We tried, like, glass marbles, because it had to be something that wouldn't absorb water, right? So obviously these aren't edible breads. This is to determine payload, uh, determine how much of... A thing I can put in a dough before it just—it's really going to kill the volume. So we tested with glass, um, like marbles. We tested with shot, lead shot. Uh, we tested with garnet too, sand, um, and even just actually putting weight on top. Let's say if we were doing a 500 uh, gram uh, piece of dough, you know, we, we would stack these. Um, we would bake them in a, in square pans, and then we'd have pieces of metal that we would put on top that would fit direct, like right on top of the dough. And it's, it's incredible how strong uh, the expansion can be. Like a 500 gram loaf of bread could push two kilos off easily. Um, and so this is to say, well, you can put this much of something in a dough and still have the integrity of the dough.
4: This expansion isn't constricted to baguettes and brioche. As Wasef Haroun tells us, it's the same process that's found in the puff of a pita. If you see, in the process of baking
8: a pita, you notice that when you slide it into a hot oven, that uh, very shortly uh, after, the pita pops up like a balloon, and slowly. The reason why it does that is that the outside surface of the dough has formed a protective sheen where the dough is oxidizing and it's blocking the moisture that's inside the, the dough from escaping. And so it, it splits into two halves, one with, with, with the, each outside uh, section, and then the steam fills the inside. And that's why it stays tender and soft on the inside.
0: We'll let you chew on that. And we'll be right back with more Modernist Breadcrumbs. Bob's Red Mill is proud to bring you Modernist Breadcrumbs. Love learning about food? Get delicious recipes, valuable coupons, and more discussions on our favorite ingredients at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Imagine if ovens were like iPhones, and every year you had the chance to buy the upgraded version.
12: Kitchen technology may not move as fast as your other tools, but it's definitely evolving faster than ever before.
0: This is Jennifer Liuzzi, host of Tech Bytes on Heritage Radio Network, which explores the intersection of technology and food.
12: For starters, just look at the availability of sous vide and pressure cookers that are now controlled via apps.
0: It seems like there's a new gadget every day. So Jen, what are some of the latest tech developments in the world of baking?
12: Well, the baking industry, like many others, is seeing its fair share of new technologies. For several years, labs have been working on developing 3D food printers, which would essentially allow you to deploy edible ingredients out of capsules and then cook or bake them. There's also a rise in baking subscription box services that can curate mixes and recipes for home cooks. At the end of the day, though, baking has been around for millennia, so I'm not sure it's an industry that will be susceptible to much disruption, as they say in the tech world.
0: Jen, I think you have a point there. A lot of things are improved over time. Some things are just perfect the way they are. That's why Bob's Red Mill offers an extensive line of organic and whole grain foods with nothing added and nothing taken away. Just complete wholesome goodness the way nature intended. For more, including some delicious recipe ideas and great coupon offers, check out bobsredmill.com podcast. Bob's Red Mill, believers in whole grain foods for every meal of the day.
2: Where there's smoke, there's fire, they say. But since the mid-1960s, where there's been wood fire, there was likely Alan Scott, artisan of the brick oven. Since his passing in 2009, people like Richard Miskovich, a professor at Johnson & Wales University in Providence and author of From the Wood Fired Oven, have kept the hearth alive, debating arches over round ovens for baking bread and preferring round breads in rectangular ovens.
13: Um, well, I try not to get angry, but uh, there I have you know there are, I have strong opinions about, and I've written about this like whether it's a pizza oven or a bread oven or they're just I, I think the 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 fact that it eludes people is it's it's more about thermal mass, like how hefty the oven is and um, how well insulated it is rather than the shape, although I do prefer an arched oven over a round oven for bread baking, because it's easier to steam. You don't have as much voluminous space above the bread. Um, But whatever oven fits into people's lifestyles is one that they should build or acquire. What are you going to build now? I'll build build an arched oven, like, based on Alan Scott's plans. That's how I learned that. I do... I I love the beauty of an arch. I like building arches. I like being able to bring it down, um, bring the arch down closer to the bread. And I like the rectangular shape because it's it's easier to systematically load it, you know? It's like a round thing is hard for me to evenly space things. The corners can get a little bit inaccessible, so... It seems more like a. I mean, it, it, if you think of the arch being the step forward in architecture, it's also somewhat more refined. Nothing against round ovens, but I just, I like looking at an arch. You know. So,
12: what do you prefer, round breads or rectangular?
13: <laughs> um, I prefer round breads in a rectangular oven. But you can get more bread, and then you know, I you always fall back on like, is it a commercial uh, um, oven? And if so, then you want to get as much bread in there as possible, and it's easier to pack a square oven or a rectangular oven.
4: As temperatures rise, there's a decree as to which breads bake well at specific degrees. So this is one
13: of my favorite parts of a wood-fired oven, is you have all of those options, and that's why it's good to have the appropriate amount of thermal mass so it can stay warm or hot as long as you want it to. So 1,000 degrees is pretty hot, but you can, you can definitely char things. You, could, you can make pizza. You can definitely make pizza, right? That's going to be a 60-second pizza. Um, one of my favorite things to do with live fire are just onions or other vegetables. You can just put them in there and char them and then serve them that way. Same way people do on a gas stove, but you have all those evocative flavors from the fire. Um, and then other high-temp uh, cooking uh, applications. You know, cook, you know cooking uh, anything that needs to be seared. Nice cuts of meat. Um, so if we're down to say 500 degrees, maybe even a little bit more than that, we could start with hearth breads that aren't too, that aren't too dense, um, and then go through that whole window. Yeasted breads, naturally leavened breads, more whole grain breads, as the temperature goes down the loaf itself can become larger, so it might not just be the type of bread but the size of bread. So you get like two kilo miche, right? You can put that in because it's at a lower temperature because it's going to take longer to bake. <clears throat> and then maybe we can start adding some sweeteners to some of those. Honey and oh, a whole wheat bread. Um, and then we come out the other side of that kind of bread baking window with maybe some other, well, not really out, but some sweet and enriched breads, challah, pandami, other baked goods. Now we're 350, cakes, and we have casserole temperatures, right? Other kind of low-temp baking, but maybe more food.
2: Ovens, like people, have personalities. They have an identity that imbues bread separate of the baker's spirit. If you haven't already, name your oven and tweet it to us at hashtag modernistbreadcrumbs. It deserves the recognition.
13: Well, I think when you put, you know, at a certain point in construction, ovens, become they start to take on their own personality. Like there's this energy that you feel off of it. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but... It is going to be this kind of, it, it, they all have personalities. This is the least crazy place that makes Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I know I'm thinking about people on the other end here. Um, so I think by putting the thought into building an oven um, and, and the energy, it's just like making good bread. You, you have a part of yourself in that. And, and it kind of comes through in the baking process or in, the, in, the, in your relationship with the oven. And I think manufactured ovens are great too, and people have strong relationships with those. And, and, and it's great that people who don't have the inclination to build their own oven can easily acquire one and, and have it assembled pretty easily and have it, have it work well for them. So ultimately, everyone should have an oven. Uh, and there are differences. In, in whether you build it or whether you buy it. But it's all better than not having an oven. I mean
0: ultimately everyone should have a wood fire? System?
13: Yes, yeah, yeah. Is there, are there other types?
12: <laughs>
4: <laughs> the man, or should we say the boy, on the cover of Alan Scott's preeminent book, The Bread Builders, is none other than Chad Robertson of San Francisco's Tartine Bakery. Even at a young age, Chad was already baking with wood fire,
14: I mean, I was like 12 years old when I was baking in a wood-fired oven, so I I don't miss it. Um, the thing about a wood-fired oven is it's really a pleasure to work on if you don't have to make a living working like that. If you have to make a living, I hope that you figure out a better way to do it than with a wood-fired oven, because it's just, at least if you're living in, in a city like uh, San Francisco or New York, it, it, in, in certain other parts of the country, maybe... Um, it would make sense and you could, and you could totally do it. And I know bakers that are doing it and it's beautiful and I love it. Um, but that's not really the way for, uh, for us to make it work. Um, I, yeah, I mean the, the interesting thing about the technology, the baking technology we're using now, which is thermal oil, is that it's, I mean, for me, I love it because I love science and I love learning new things and, uh, you know, hopefully till the day I die, I'm going to continue to do so. Um, crazy thing is that for for 20 years uh for me the most important thing about the oven and about the baking is to have a massive amount of thermal mass which was always masonry in the in the case of wood-fired ovens even deck ovens the best deck ovens had the most masonry mass in them um like you know our deck ovens that we've used for 20 years have masonry bricks below in the firebox and it's you know it's a ton of bricks um The thing about thermal oil is that the oven is actually, you know, lighter weight. The thermal mass is all contained in the oil, which is basically liquid thermal mass, which is mind-blowing for me. And when you see how it works, it's it's really cool stuff.
2: Nathan embraces the embers of a wood-fired bread, but being the technologist he is, doesn't want to disavow moving forward just for the sake of looking back.
3: The bread world uh, has had a lot of focus on the artisanal bread movement, about being ever more primitive, about being ever more back. You know, the, the, the best days of bread are behind us. Uh, it's gotten to a stage where people have gotten a little out of control. You know, that now folks are saying, well, gee, do you, uh, you, you have to bake in a wood-fired oven. And the problem with that is that the wood-fired ovens in the United States are pizza ovens. They suck for bread. Okay, this is, I don't think this ought to be like a secret, but lots of people think, oh, that's the best way to bake bread. No, they're terrible. And by the way, no one in Europe does that. The places that use wood-fired ovens, like the the old uh, Polan Bakery in um, Paris, it's a totally different type of oven. Amusingly, the, uh, the Polan uh, oven looks very, very much like the Roman ovens in Pompeii. Uh, and they're nothing like the wood-fired ovens we have here. In particular, the wood is not in the same chamber as the bread. Um, and it, the whole idea of trying to make your, uh, bread ever more primitive is kind of stuck at this point because, like, what's next? Stone tools? Like, is it bad to use metal? Uh, I don't think so. Um, you know, the... the I think the focus really should be on making great bread, and making great bread does involve some technology.
4: I don't know if I would call it primitive bread, but I've had a few loaves languish on the counter longer than they should. Heat is a key characteristic of living things. However, when it comes to bread, a little warmth can bring a stale loaf back from the dead.
8: while bread does dry a little bit while it's staling, it's more about water migration, and it's more about starch. Starch really likes to be in crystalline form, and it's gonna do everything it can to go back to that shape. Um, And that is what staling is, is water going from one point, one part of the crumb to another part of the crumb. You also have water that is moving to the surface of the crust, right? I mean, water is going to continue to move to the crust, and it's gonna soften your crust. So all these things are happening the moment your bread is like completely cooled down. Water likes to move. Um, And so once you have, I mean, we're still talking about how to delay staling, but uh, I'm gonna get back into how to reverse it real quick. And that is apply heat. Um, And typically what you want to do, and what we recommend is you can wrap your bread in foil and then just put it in an oven. Until it's, if you have a thermometer, shove a thermometer in there, and once it reaches 185 degrees Fahrenheit, you will have reverse staling completely. And your bread is practically good as new. Sure, there will be some shrinking because there was some evaporation, so we sometimes find that the crust tends to be a little bit more crackly. Um, But wrapping it in foil and putting it even in a toaster oven and getting it to 185 degrees Fahrenheit is going to basically reverse staling.
2: Bread is cheap, but that's no reason to be wasteful. Francisco explains how the path to a resuscitated loaf doesn't have to involve special certification. Or repeating the phrase, "Annie, Annie, are you okay?"
8: Well, and but that's that's we have a a, a lot of sections in our book on how to prevent. You know, bread is so cheap that people just rather just throw it away. Uh, but we we 're looking at ways to prevent uh, waste and how to rescue things uh, you know we 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 have this technique for rescuing over proof bread which is basically just reshape it um, and let it proof again um, we 're calling it the cPR method which is a carbohydrate protein resuscitation which is a, it's a it 's a cheesy title but it 's cpr it 's dough cpr and essentially what you 're doing is you 're you take this proof piece of dough and instead of throwing it in the overproof piece of dough, I'm sorry, instead of throwing it in the garbage, what you do is you take it out of the banitone, the, the basket you were proofing it in, you degas it, and then you reshape it. What happens when dough is overproofed is that it's the cell walls in the bubbles become super thin and they become so thin that they can't hold on to the bubble anymore.
4: Once you rescue your dough. Where are you going to put it? Earlier in the series, we discovered the historical difference between ceiling and floor breads. Nathan pointed out that without this distinction, we would never have had pizza. Ken Forkish agrees that bread and pizza are not so distant relatives.
5: Yeah, Being a baker and understanding, to the degree that I do, understanding fermentation um, allows me to uh, be a better pizza guy. Just one hundred percent percent. If I had just let's say I didn't know anything about bread dough ferment, fermentation and I had a pizza dough recipe and it worked, there's no way I'm going to change it. Right. There's no way I'm going to adjust it because I'm not going to know what I'm doing. Uh, but by virtue of understanding both the physical characteristics of dough, which is so important in pizza, like if you want to stretch a dough out to 18 inches around to make a you know a New York style pie, if that dough doesn't have the right physical characteristics, it's it's either you're going to have like super floppy cris- uh, slice, or it's going to have. You know, pockets where the dough is thin and pockets where the dough is thick. So you need the right physical structure, but you also want the flavor. You want the crunch. You want you know, a certain amount of crunch on the crust, and all those things. If you want to, you either have to. I mean, you want control of your own dough, so uh, I think there's an advantage being a bread guy because you know, I, I have an understanding of dough and its fermentation and its physical characteristics. So if it's like if, I, if something goes weird. I know how to troubleshoot it.
4: When it comes to ovens, however, bread and pizza are not such good bedfellows.
5: So that's my bread oven and I don't use it for much else. Um, I know it's tartine they use that oven for uh, for a lot of their pastries, their croissants too. Um I bake my croissants in a convection oven and then my pizza oven at Ken's Artisan Pizza is a wood fired oven, it's a panole. It's not a traditional pizza oven, to be honest. Um, it has great heat mess, which I like about it. Uh, it's a 15,000-pound oven, and it just radiates heat with so much power. The thing that makes it not traditional is the pizza oven is the dome height is higher in the Ponyol than it is in a lot of other pizza ovens. Um, but we manage it, and we make a style of pizza that is kind of unique to that oven. It's definitely not truly Neapolitan in style Uh, because ours is a little bit crisper crust. Uh, And a real Neapolitan pizza bakes in about a minute. Uh, Ours take about two and a half minutes in the oven, so it loses a little bit more moisture. It's not as soft and delicate or as doughy as a Neapolitan pizza. Uh, It has a little bit more crispness to it, and it's just, uh, it's really our own style. We weren't really trying to do somebody else's pizza. Uh, And then at Triteca Annex, I've got, um, it's a pizza master, is the manufacturer. They're actually made in Sweden, and it's an electric uh, uh deck oven. And it just, oh, it's just—it's amazing. It makes the—it's uh, the best oven I know for a New York-style pizza. I love it.
2: So, what is the difference between these regional styles? A stance on pineapple as a topping? Historically, the ovens have been more influential than the add-ons.
11: When bakeries like you know this these uh... italian bakeries in the city were around and actually they're all closed now mm. uh, d and is closed um, um, uh, Zitos is closed mm. uh... there may be one or two left up in the uh, bronx and these were basically big big uh... coal-fired ovens copied after ovens that were generally used in altamora a mm. lot of the a lot of the baker's who who, who set up the these Italian bakeries in New York w- were from this famous uh, area in Puglia called Altamora.
4: In Manhattan, go to Lombardi's on spring, John's on bleaker, and make the trek out to Totono's on Neptune Avenue in Coney Island. I mean, we love a good slice joint too. But if you want to have it all, Tony Gemignani fires up multiple oven types for an assortment of pizza styles. We
1: yeah. have double stack electric ovens. We have a uh, gluten-free in one stack and the other stack we do pizza Romana, which is like a three foot meter long, uh, type pizza that, uh, has just a plethora of different ingredients on it. Uh, we have classic Italian, which is in a gas brick oven that's cooked at 650 degrees. We have 550 degrees that we cook our Sicilians, our grandmas and some of our other styles, like our regional, just California, American style pizzas and those, um, we have a wood-fired up front, which is cooked at 900 degrees, 90 seconds, uh, true Neapolitan, Verace Pizza Napolitana out of that oven. And then we have a rotating gas brick oven. It's called a Rotoflex. It's, it's a beast. It uh, has multi-levels in it. Uh, we do our, our um, New York-style 20-inch pizzas that are cut into six slices. And um, we do some other traditional pizzas out of that, like strombolis, calzones, stuff like that.
2: We all have our own ways of baking, and sometimes we might find an oven that bakes just right. Tony Gemignani demystifies the quest for a perfect oven.
1: Um, a lot of people understand that surface heat um, is, is great, but at the same time, it's, it's, there's a term called recovery time. What's your recovery time in an oven? And throwing a pizza in and it took 90 seconds. And you threw a pizza in and it took 92 seconds. And you threw a pizza in that spot. It took, you know, uh, 98 seconds. So all of a sudden, that that oven isn't recovering properly. Well, it may not be insulated well. And just understanding that all ovens are a little diff- different. The depth, the mouth, the height, of uh, the dome, the curve, uh, the roundness. It's it's all, they all play a factor. Um, Like I say, I have two ovens next to each other. I have a gas brick oven and electric oven, one Italian oven, one built in New York. I have them both set at 550. The electric oven will will cook quicker. And all my students are like, well, how's that? They're set at the same temperature. I said, just because they're set at the same temperature doesn't mean that they're going to cook equally or the same. I'm going to look at the height of this gas oven that's about six inches higher in the inside and look at this you know, this hype of this oven, electric right next to it.
4: So it's actually science that determines which oven cooks just right. When it comes to whatever is in the water, it's a similar story. And after this, if you haven't already ordered a pie, go out and get a slice. You deserve one.
8: If you're not in Naples and, you know, you just can't make good pizza outside of Naples. And is that true? That's absolutely not true. Um, I think that I've had plenty of good pizzas, yes, in Naples, but also in other parts of the world, and I don't think it's the water. Um, In fact, we're positive it's not the water. It's it's the method, it's how you treat the dough, it's how you follow through from beginning to end, which is going to have a positive or negative result on the dough.
0: Jose Marti, a writer and journalist known as the Apostle of the Cuban Revolution, once said, We light the oven so that everyone may bake bread in it. Marti goes on to say that he will spend his whole life at the oven door, seeing that no one is denied bread, so as to give a lesson of charity, especially those who do not bring flour. Access to the right ingredients and a hearth in which to bake should not be a revolutionary thought. Keep your dough rising and your ovens on, because we're not done baking yet.
2: This has been Episode 7 of Modernist Breadcrumbs, Thermal Mass, on baking and ovens. Last but not yeast, next week will be Episode 8, Bread Box. Our theme music is by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Lowe's. Hear more on Instagram at carolclevelandsings.
4: So as we've heard, talking about bread can be a real loaf or death situation.
9: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.